0: Michelle Martin, welcome to Money and Me. Could the Ukrainian crisis speed up the decoupling between China and the US? What could this and the wider geopolitical uncertainty mean for long-term investors? Later we ask, are there beaten down growth stocks to consider now? And considering dividend stocks during market volatility, is that a good way to weather the storms? We put all these questions to Tim Phillips, he's head of content for Prosperous by CGS CIMB Securities. Good morning, Tim. How are you?
1: I'm good, Michelle. How are you?
0: doing well. All right, help us map yeah. out the Ukrainian crisis and what this means for decoupling. This was a big narrative that we were talking about of course before the the invasion of Ukraine. Are we seeing shifting balance of interests after the invasion and uh do you think that's going to be an acceleration of decoupling between China and US capital markets?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think actually this sort of decoupling was already underway mm. um, before the the invasion, but I think what it has done has actually made a lot of um, well, both retail investors and institutional investors sort of um, sit up and, and take notice of, of their exposure to China as well, because of these sanctions that were so swiftly imposed on Russia. So I think from the Chinese side, they were probably quite surprised, as I guess the rest of the world was, with the speed with which the West came out and agreed upon all these sanctions on Russia and imposed them, such as the uh, the swift payments ban. Uh, a lot of oil and gas exports that were also banned from Russia. So I think the speed with which that happened really surprised um, the Chinese political leaders as well as as well as I think the rest of the world. Um, and so now you've seen a lot of institutional investors also wake up to the fact: uh, what is their exposure to certain Chinese stocks? And you know, obviously, there's been the analogies with. Russia, Ukraine, and China, Taiwan, and we, obviously they're completely um, different, uh, separate political situations. But there are risks involved with exposure to China. So, I mean, for example, recently the Norwegian, um, the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, actually dropped its holdings in Li Ning, which is a Chinese sportswear manufacturer, based on ESG concerns surrounding uh, the use of cotton that is sourced from Xinjiang, you know, the, the region in China, and so that. You know, I think it's, it's had a really big impact in in terms of the sentiment for exposure to Chinese stocks, and so what you're seeing is now a lot of institutional investors obviously assess or reassess how exposed they are to China and how this could uh, this could impact their long-term holdings in the country because you see Russian ADRs, well, I mean, obviously Russian stocks listed in the U.S. basically being marked down, uh, frozen in terms of the assets, and and then being marked down. So. Could that happen with Chinese ADRs? I think the, the, the answer is probably unlikely. I don't think it will happen. Uh, and if, the, if it does, there will definitely be a lot more visibility around the timing of it. So there will be time for investors to move their holdings to, say, the Hong Kong listing, which you're already seeing with a lot of professional investors. They're moving a lot of their ADR exposure in, in, in the U.S. to the Hong, Kong, uh, the Hong Kong secondary listing. For example, Alibaba um you saw Temasek do that about sort of 18 months ago just as geopolitical tensions are rising with the US and so i think you're going to see a lot of that being shifted over to the hong kong listing uh, as as time goes on which is which is to be expected given there's i think a, both a push and a pull from the us side the us side wants to protect investors in chinese stocks in the us and the chinese government wants their companies to be listed in their home markets of hong kong shanghai shenzhen so I don't think there's really much incentive for either country or the government rather to have Chinese stocks being listed as ADRs in the U.S. longer term. So I think this shift, which was already underway before Ukraine, will, will continue to happen as, as uh, the year progresses.
0: What does this mean for Chinese companies' access to U.S. capital markets, do you think?
1: I think for Chinese companies in, in terms of the liquidity and, you know, the U.S. can't be beaten. I think that's quite clear that the, the capital markets there are so deep. But now that you've got, you know, the Hong Kong market and it's it the liquidity there with with turnover on the Hong Kong stock exchange, and with companies being able to raise money at home uh, and within within Asia more broadly, I don't think it will impact them uh, too much to an extent in terms of in terms of the the main champions. If you're talking about what the Chinese actually are prioritizing over the next five years, uh, it, it's being self-sufficient, right? So I think mm. the whole the whole Trump administration and the crackdown on Huawei and um, and you know basically uh, starving the Chinese economy of chips if they if they want to, I think that's going to have uh, an impact on certain companies. And so China is now prioritized its own chips. So at the moment, they only actually produce twenty percent of the chips, semiconductors that they consume in China. So in the latest five-year plan, they actually want to raise that percentage to seventy percent by two thousand twenty-five. So I think that's going to take out a really big part of the insecurity, the insecurity that Chinese government has surrounding technology. Um, and so I think that also relates back to Ukraine and to the whole Taiwan situation. You know, the U.S. and the West are obviously reluctant to get involved militarily in in the Ukraine. I think the situation with Taiwan would be a little bit different because in the in Taiwan there is a national security interest from the U.S. perspective. In that, you know, around eighty to ninety percent of the the high tech, cutting edge chips are actually manufactured in Taiwan via TSMC. Mm. So that's a massive national security concern for the U.S. So I think there's defi- there are definitely differences between the two situations, and so with Taiwan there's a much more critical situation in terms of technology for the whole world. If you think about semiconductors, they go into absolutely everything, right? So if Taiwan Semiconductor suddenly stops shipping uh, chips, you know, there are, there are going to be massive, massive problems for the global economy, way beyond what we've seen with, uh, with Russia and Ukraine. So there are, you know, there are lots of moving parts um, for investors. I, I tend to not want to get politics involved in long-term investing, but I think that's something that investors are going to have to get used to for the next five or 10 years.
0: Yeah, can we tease out a couple of strains there? I mean, geopolitical risk, not often easy to, to map out in terms of ramifications for investing. Mm-hmm. We know it's a crucial imp- input to economic decisions, mm-hmm. but really not easy to assess or encapsulate. So what do you yeah. think long-term investors need to, to take in view, given the geopolitical situation? How could it impact long-term investing?
1: Well, I think the past decade or the past twenty years, ever since China's ascended to the global economy, you know, via the WTO in 2000, what was it 2001, 2002? Mm. You know, it's been a really golden generation. Politics hasn't really taken um, that much of a front seat to, to market returns. You've had the U.S. market do really well. You've had, in the past ten years at, at least, and you've had China rise, right, in terms of the power. But now the power dynamics are shifting. And so China now really sees itself as uh, sort of a, an ascendant power that is able to challenge the U.S. as the hegemonic global power. So if you think about investing and where you're allocating money, I mean, personally, from my perspective, from a long term perspective, I've, I've always thought of, at least in the past three or four years, that the dangers of being ex- exposed to US listed companies that have too much business in China. And this isn't, you know, to say that these companies aren't great. They're really great. So for example, Apple, Nike, Starbucks, they're all really amazing, amazing companies. And, you know, I think lots of people would own them. But personally, for me, I don't like to own that because it just adds an extra layer of geopolitical risk from the perspective of what happens if, you know, Chinese consumers or the Chinese government whips up some sort of um, maybe vendetta against Apple products or Starbucks products or Nike products in the event that there's a disagreement. And so they've had this sort of history, I think, with weaponizing consumers. And now you've got the West also weaponizing the financial system. So there's, there are definitely two competing visions for the world and how they see it. So if you think about in 2012 with the Diao Islands, the Senkaku Islands, as Japan calls them, there, were, there was a disagreement with China and Japan um, and China – you know, obviously, stopped tour groups to Japan. There was there was there were there were protests against Japanese, uh, the Japanese the Japanese diplomatic stance, and car, car makers such as Toyota and Honda saw their their sales in China fall off about fifty sixty percent within a few months. Um, and then in two thousand seventeen, there was an incident with Korea. So this is harking back into you know sort of the past four or five years with what was called the THAAD, which is Terminal High Altitude Aerial Defense, and this is a this was an anti missile system aimed. Uh, more more aimed at protecting South Korea from North Korea, but obviously the Chinese government saw it a little bit differently and What happened there was there, was, um, there were bans for you know Chinese tourists to to Korea, which impacted the Korean economy and there also there were also uh, you know investigations into a department store called Lotte which which I think were maybe motivated a bit by the diplomatic stance and, and the, co- the company eventually left uh, the Chinese market so I think those are two incidences which maybe make me think about. Your exposure from a Chinese perspective with U.S. companies—not to say that that will ever happen, because you know U.S. is a very different story—but I think when I look at long-term investing, and I think over the next five to ten years, mm. is there are there going to be lots of maybe ethical questions asked of these U.S. and Western brands? Are they going to stand up for the U.S. values and what they see as you know the freedom of information and freedom of of speech versus how they operate in China? I think it's something that investors really have to ask themselves because there are going to be lots of dilemmas that uh, you know the management teams of these companies are going to have to deal with, um, and they they can't be on uh, they can't be on both sides all the time and they can't be right all the time. So that's that's one thing that I think about as a long-term investor.
0: As a long-term investor, do you think Hong Kong markets then are undervalued?
1: I think Hong Kong markets at the moment are, yeah, I think they are definitely, you know, if you're looking at, if you're looking at a price to earnings, I think it's trading at what, like a five, six year low. I mean, it's definitely, it's definitely cheap. Um, I also, like to say that cheap is not a reason to buy something, so I don't necessarily think that's a good reason to go in and buy um, buy a lot of these Chinese tech stocks. Um, but there are some really great companies in Hong Kong that have been, you know, thrown out, I guess, with uh, with, with the bathwater, so to speak, you know. So I think it's more a case of stock picking is going to be really, really important for investors in this type of market. And depending how you position your portfolio is at least in Hong Kong China in alignment with where the government sees, you know, its priorities because I mm. think this whole common prosperity drive has really driven a lot of the market returns over the past 18 months.
0: All right, Tim, let's take a look at yeah. growth stocks. Is this the year mm. to buy into growth stocks?
1: Well, as Warren Buffett says, you know when, when stock markets fall twenty percent it's the only place um, when things go on sale that people run out the store right so <laughs> for me it's more a case of if you like this company um, six months ago and it was trading you know fifty sixty seventy percent higher and nothing has changed about the business, then really you should like this company even more at this price but obviously you need to be a bit measured in how you enter and um, enter positions um, and, and if you still really have conviction on companies and I think at this point in time, there's no reason to say that you shouldn't at least have exposure to it, it to growth stocks. And there are definitely winners in this, in this sort of drought that has been, or this route over the past two, three months that I think in five, six years, 10 years will be, will be a lot higher than they are today.
0: We've talked about Shopify before, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm keen yeah. to hear if you still think that it is a growth stock to get into.
1: One that is definitely still, I mean, is one of my highest conviction holdings, I would have to say. I think just the way that e commerce has been going over the past year or two years, and there's all this talk about going back to uh, a post COVID economy, but in terms of actual penetration, it's still at the early stages of growth. And, you know, they've signed some really big deals. They signed a deal with JD.com, I think about a month or two months ago, which will allow US merchants to ship into China. So I think they're expanding their ecosystem constantly, and they're still looking to grow even as the share price obviously comes down. So I think in terms of the management, in terms of the vision, in terms of the the building blocks that Shopify are providing for merchants, I don't think that story has changed at all in the past five, six months. And. I think it's definitely, um, you know, one that that investors who are keen for growth stock exposure should keep an eye on.
0: So still unstoppable in Mm. your point of view?
1: I think so. I think so, yeah.
0: All right. Let's take a look at dividend stocks. Whenever markets Mm. get volatile, um, investors bring back dividend stocks. They come back into vogue. What do you think?
1: Yeah, well, I think, for investors, I mean, this might sound a bit boring to younger growth investors, but I think everyone should have some dividend stocks in their portfolio just because it provides a bit of stability and it's always good to get used to you know, owning great businesses. And some of these businesses that, are, that pay dividends, they don't necessarily deliver really boring returns. I mean, something like a Home Depot, you know, for example, which pays a 2.2% yield, that was up about 60%, 70% last year. So, I mean, it's not, it's not something that is, I, I would consider dull. Um, but in terms of in terms of rising inflation and interest rates, I think dividends provide that buffer and that security. And so for older investors, obviously, they probably have a, a bit more exposure to dividend stocks. And for younger investors, I always think it's a good opportunity to, to actually just buy into new businesses and learn about businesses that are already profitable, for example. Obviously, a lot of growth stocks are profitable. Um, and obviously, if, if, if a company is paying a dividend, it tends to be profitable. It tends to be enormously free cash flow positive. And it tends to be a company that can continue to pay out its dividend and keep hiking it. So, I think it's one where there are lots of opportunities in the U.S. market, lots of opportunities even in Asia and obviously in Singapore and Hong Kong. There are some really great uh, dividend options for investors.
0: I wonder if you could share a couple.
1: Yeah, so I think I think one that I found really interesting, I think recently is hmm. because of the because of the energy security issues with Russia. Um, something you've seen. Something that I've noticed, in, in at least in my own portfolio, is uh, companies like Nextera, Nextera Energy, um, and, and Brookfield Renewable Partners, which are both clean energy providers. They've actually held up pretty well in this market and have done well because I think it's proven to investors that this transition to you know the, the decarbonization of the global economy, which will take decades anyway, but it's really highlighted the urgency of it given how much reliance there is maybe on Russian oil and gas and with energy security more broadly for countries. And so if you can produce your own renewable energy, you don't need to rely on imports of oil. You don't need to rely on imports of gas. I think that really highlights the opportunity that's in front of in front of countries and the massive runway that it has. So for example, Brookfield Renewable Partners, which is actually a listed subsidiary of uh, Brookfield Asset Management, you know, they own about 21 gigawatts of um, of uh, renewable energy producing assets. And so what they do is they then, you know, they own those assets. They provide the power to utility providers. And these contracts are drawn up on sort of five, 10, 15 year uh, basis with with escalators, inflation escalators in terms of the power that they're providing. So there's a lot of visibility for investors in these types of names. Uh, and then they also yield a decent amount. So for example, Brookfield Renewable Partners yields about 3 to 3.3% at the moment, and it's Canada Canada domiciled rather. So actually, you know, according to my uh, understanding, it's it's it has a lesser, has a lower dividend withholding tax. Because if you think about if you think about um, the U.S., usually it has a 30% withholding tax, whereas Brookfield Renewable. Partners has at least, uh, you know, is half that with uh, the Canada and uh, Singapore double taxation treaties about 15%. So there are lots of opportunities that you wouldn't think about just because I think in the US, everyone likes to concentrate on that 30% withholding tax and that freaks everybody out. But if you have companies that are growing their dividends, say Home Depot or Lowe's, they're growing their dividend at 25, 30% a year. Um, That 30% 30 dividend withholding tax isn't actually going to be that scary after five or 10 years because, you know, what you invested in. I guess ten years ago, your yield on cost is going to be absolutely huge in, in five or ten years.
0: Mm, Brookfield Renewable, intriguing upside. Uh, mm. Given, I understand they've lost ground last year, tumbled more than thirty percent from their peak over the past year. It did,
1: it did. I think there was a bit more of the hype around renewable energy last year, and I think it got it a bit ahead of itself because two thousand twenty was such a was such a bumper year for them in terms of returns, and then last year there was all this. I think I guess maybe air was let out of the of the rally, mm. but I think now this is a story that at least what I think of from the long term is is a ten year story it 's not a really a two or three year story right. this is something that is going to happen over you know it 's going to happen over ten twenty years the decarbonization of 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 uh, the global economy and the, the the you know the stats are staggering i think it 's like a sixteen trillion dollar opportunity for all sorts of companies in this area mm. and so I think that 's the kind of that's the kind of runway that you're seeing. And so Brookfield is continuing to acquire assets both in North America, you know, across the globe, North America, Europe, Asia, um, across wind, across solar, uh, it already has a lot of hydroelectric capacity as well. So I think there's definitely opportunity for it to keep growing its dividend. It's It's grown its dividend for about 10, 12 years at a rate of around, you know, 6%. So it's reasonable and it keeps up with inflation. So you definitely want a dividend that it's growing at least in line with inflation, if not, if not more.
0: Great ideas on how to survive a stormy market. Tim Phillips, <laughs> Head of Content for Prosperous by CGSCIMB Securities. Thanks, Tim.
1: Yeah, great. Thanks, Michelle. It's been great chatting.
0: Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.